This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. It's a pleasure to be here uh, tonight. Um, you may have noticed, or maybe not, uh, that I changed the title of the talk from when it was announced. And, um, and I did that for a specific reason. My hope tonight is to give you a little bit of a window into how technological advancements are helping us understand uh, the planet that we inhabit better. And, and to do so, I'm going to use an, uh, an example, a very local example, um, and one that you, I think, probably all have had some experience with yourselves, and that is the very strong but occasional red tides that we get here in Southern California. So can I see a, a, a show of hands? Who here has seen the red tides and who here has seen the beautiful bioluminescence associated with the red tides? Um, yeah, and so it's, it's really quite an incredible and quite a captivating phenomenon. Uh, this photograph uh, here on my title slide uh, really emblemizes uh, the, you know, what it looks like. That's a picture of Scripps Pier, of course, um, and the breaking waves creating, uh, well, the breaking waves inducing a bioluminescent response in an organism called a dinoflagellate. Um, and uh, this picture was taken by a Scripps graduate student, actually, uh, which is kind of a, a fun thing. And it's something that, in addition to the fact that it lights up our coastline, um, in addition to the fact that it discolors the water, these, these algal blooms have big impacts. And we're going to talk about some of those impacts, both locally and nationally and internationally, and some of the technology that we are um, building to study them. So I'm part of a, a large group. Um, here at Scripps uh, Oceanography, I'll just give a little bit more introduction about myself. I'm, you know, I consider myself to be a highly interdisciplinary scientist. I have an undergraduate degree in biology. I came here to Scripps uh, to learn about physical oceanography and the intersection between biology and physical oceanography. Physical oceanography is a study of the dynamics of the ocean, the physics of the ocean. Um, and in the process, I learned, I think, a lesson that, you know, probably most or all oceanographers have learned over the years, which is that we are limited in our ability to explore the ocean by the tools that we have to explore it with. And so that gave to me this sense, this incredible sense of the fact that there was so much yet to be discovered in the ocean as long as we were continuously developing technology. And so as part of the multi-scale ocean dynamics group, that's what our bread and butter is. We do that to study lots of different things in the ocean, not just red tides in La Jolla. We work globally. Um, we work on problems of ocean-atmosphere interaction. We work on problems of uh, climate change and overturning circulation and ocean turbulence. We work on problems of biogeochemistry in the sea. But we do it through an observational at-sea approach. Um, and so here's a couple of pictures of... of, uh, of uh, of us doing work on board one of UCSD's uh, vessels, the Roger Ravel. Um, these were these pictures. One of them was taken in the Bay of Bengal, where I've done a lot of work on the monsoons, um, and the other in the South China Sea. The other thing I'll, I'll say is that we believe in our group, and I believe personally very strongly in things that get developed in the in in, in the academy, and new techniques need to be transferred outside of the university, developed, and uh, enabling other people to do science. So in, in my contribution to that is in 2016, with some collaborators, I started a, a startup company 
that licensed technology that we developed here at Scripps and at UCSD and now sells it commercially in order to allow other folks um, to make new and novel discoveries about the ocean. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about that particular uh, system. Before we get into the kind of the narrow focus of tonight's topic, I did want to note that this type of oceanographic research requires support um, uh, from a lot of sources. And I've been lucky enough over the course of my career to be supported by the Office of Naval Research, by the National uh, Science Foundation, by NOAA, um, and by NASA. And you're going to hear a little bit about particularly NOAA and the, OSHA, uh, the Office of Naval Research's support of my uh, work. And I will say that I'm, I'm happy right now. That picture up there is from the Norwegian Sea um, at exactly this time one year ago, um, uh, early November of 2022. Um, and my colleagues are, and, and some of the people that work in our lab are there right now, again, in the Norwegian Sea, about 75 degrees north, um, and it is very dark and is very cold uh, where they are right now, and I am uh, quite happy to be talking uh, to you today here. Um, and I do have a good excuse. I'm teaching a class, um, uh, an introductory class in the Oceanic and Atmospheric Sciences uh, major, which is the reason why I had to stay in San Diego this term. Um, and I did want to let me say one more thing before I go on, and that's about the intersection of different departments at UCSD. UCSD is a huge institution, as you all know. Scripps is a single component of it, obviously a very important component of it. But there's a lot going on up the, up the hill, as, as I like to say, um, that's really actually quite relevant to the ocean science that's being practiced at Scripps. And probably seven or eight years ago now, the chancellor of UCSD started a series of faculty appointments between different departments. So I was one of the original uh, cohort of faculty that were appointed in two departments. So I'm at Scripps, and I'm also in the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, which is sort of ironic since I have never taken an engineering class uh, in my entire life. Uh, but now I, I teach them, and I do teach I teach. <laughs> So hopefully none of you guys send your kids to UCSD engineering. Just gonna, um, I do, I, I, I have learned an enormous amount about the design of technology through testing it in the ocean. The ocean will tell you whether you have a good design or not. And that's whether you like it or not, that's going to happen. And a lot of the design, um, the design arc that we go through uh, in my group is related to building, prototyping, testing at sea, and then building a new system based on what we've learned. And the beauty of doing that here is that we have access to the ocean right in front of us. And this story that I'm going to tell you today is about how we were building new instruments, and at the same time, we happened upon a, problem, uh, uh, on a major event, and they kind of fortuitously lined up where we had some new technology that was ready, and this event happened, and we were able to combine the two, and I think learn something, learn something new. Okay, so tonight I'm going to tell you about algal blooms. Algal blooms simply means a condition in which the phytoplankton, which are the single-celled organisms that fuel the ocean's food chain, when they reach very high abundances, we call that a bloom. And there's a, there's a term of art where we call thing, uh, phytoplankton blooms that impact the ecosystem or human health as harmful algal blooms. And I'm sure almost everybody in here has heard of harmful algal blooms. In Southern California, they come in kind of two flavors. The first flavor we saw a lot of this uh, year, unfortunately, 
which are toxin-producing blooms that impact pre predominantly marine mammals, but also seabirds, and there are mortalities associated with that. That's in Southern California. This, these toxins that these organisms produce also impacts human health. Those, uh, those type, that type of harmful algal bloom is caused by a group of organisms known as diatoms. It's a really important um, uh, th thing to study and something that's very broadly studied at Scripps, um, something I do work on myself. But today I'm not going to talk about that particular type of bloom. I'm going to talk about a different kind that's formed by an organism called a dinoflagellate. And dinoflagellates, it's, the contrast is not very good on that picture, but that picture I took uh, off the end of Scripps Pier um, in uh, late April 2020, and that was uh, the biggest bloom on record, red tide on record, of this dinoflagellate called Linglodinium polyhedra. Um, and that is the one that is bioluminescent. So in general, dinoflagellates can produce and do produce toxins. On the East Coast, there's a particularly nasty dinoflagellate um, called Carina brevis that, cre that um, produces toxins that are very, very harmful to human health. Um, but dinoflagellate blooms can cause negative ecosystem impacts in other ways. And here in Southern California, the way that they primarily cause uh, ecosystem impacts is through them attaining extremely high biomass. What that means is just coming to dominate the local coastal uh, ocean environment just by sheer numbers. And so um, that kind of branches our discussion today. Today we're going to be talking about ways of understanding how it is that a particular organism of the hundreds and hundreds of organisms of plankton that you would find and, and people have found, um, as I'll show you, um, off the end of the pier, how is it that one of those organisms or one group of those organisms becomes so dominant to the point where they completely um, rewrite the local ecosystem? And so, um, so I just wanted to show this. It's just because it's so uh, beautiful. There's, I want to make sure that I acknowledge the many people, I'm going to acknowledge some of them specifically, but the many people that have worked on this problem. Um, th this video was shot by Mike Latz, who is a longtime Scripps uh, researcher who did a lot of work on bioluminescence. We're all familiar with this. Does everybody know how the bioluminescence, why it is that the, light, the waves light up? So these, these, these uh, little, they're single cellular protists, and they um, are very, very sensitive to disturbances. Um, and when it's dark out and they're physically disturbed, um, for example, by a breaking wave or by a dolphin moving through the water or by a surfer moving through the water, they emit a, a, a flash of light. And if, there's a, and, and if you ask Mike uh, Latz, who's an expert in these things, he would tell you that they do that to avoid predation. When, it be, when they become extremely high biomass, that's when they start lighting up our beaches. And um, just this fall, we had a, a pretty significant red tide event. Oh, here's kind of a cool. I've actually done this, gone surfing in the red tide, and it is as magical as it, uh, as it looks. Um, okay. So you notice my talk said red water in La Jolla uh, in 2020, and that's actually a callback to a long series of papers. Uh, the first thing I got asked when, when, um, when this uh, falls uh, red tide event happened, I kind of ended up on the news and I, and I you know, ended up answering questions for the press. And a question I was also asked is, is this new? 
is this changing from climate change? Um, the first question, uh, is this new? The answer to that is no. Um, the first red tie, the first, the first written uh, evidence of red tide was from a paper published in 1902. Um, and it was from a red tide event. Uh, this, is, this actually predates Scripps. It was from a red tide event that was noticed uh, in uh, the area of Los Angeles. Um, and it is extremely prescient in terms of what, it, what that paper uh, recognized, what Harry Torrey, this is actually, I looked it up this weekend, not the same Torrey as Torrey Pines are named after. This is the first thing I thought completely different. In fact, the Tory, the botanist that the Tory Pines are named after, um, never set foot in San Diego and never saw an actual Tory Pine. It was named in his honor, uh, but he never saw that. That's, that's a little factoid that I did not know. I was kind of hoping that it was the same Tory, but it, it, it wasn't. So Harry Tory was a uh, faculty member um, at the only University of California campus at that time, which was in Berkeley. And he uh, wrote a paper about this red tide. And this picture, which is a picture from 1901, um, shows just the same thing that we saw in 2020. And that is that they were dead animals washing up on the beach. So um, I, I love the way that these old scientific papers are written because they really do. They're written with this beautiful prose and their stories. And so I'm going to read a little bit um, of this uh, to you. Um, and because, and I, I picked uh, some certain selections because I think they're important to the story that I'm going to tell and I think about the red tide in general. So it appeared suddenly. So the fur, it was first noticed on July 7th as a red streak. So that's common. The ocean just doesn't completely turn red all at once. First, we see streaks of color in the ocean. During the next few days, it approached shore. It changed shape, meaning that it was had a pattern in space. It wasn't just... Again, the ocean just turning blood red. There's a patch of red over here, clear water over there. Um, then it, they noticed it offshore first after about you know nine or 10 days, it reached shore and they saw bioluminescence. So this is 1901. Okay, so that, that means immediately the first thing that someone noticed about this or at least wrote down about this phenomenon is that it's patchy, meaning it's, not necessarily uniformly distributed in space or in time, and that sometimes it has bioluminescence. Okay. So only a few days later, after the red water was on the shore, a most sickening odor arose from the water along the beach. On the 21st, it was almost unbearable. During the night on a beach about 400 feet long, a large number of animals were left by the tide. Ganeolix, which is what they used to call this organism, it's the same organism that, uh, that it's causes the red tides today, undoubtedly produced its harmful effects by dying in enormous numbers. The putrefication changes, meaning the, the rotting of the organic material, thus occasioned the polluting of the water, giving rise to the stench, and it probably killed the organisms. So now, in this first paper in 1901, it's patchy. It's got bioluminescence. It's rare, and it can have harmful impacts. <clears throat> so the other two really important things that I think that were, no were, uh, were noted by Dr. Uh, Tori are these two. One is that there were a lot of species of organisms. They were taking samples and looking at them under the mi microscope. But during July, during the month of July, this one particular organism came to dominate. 
to the exclusion of other organisms. That is not the normal case. And then the other thing that uh, Dr. Torrey noticed is that these dinoflagellates are called dinoflagellates because they have flagella. Flagella allow them to swim. And so they are motile organisms. And as you'll see, that's going to play a really important role of, in our story. So that's, you know, that's where we started. That's 120 plus years ago. And those are, I, I think those are quite, you know, completely correct observations of the phenomenon. And I think you would all agree that if you've seen it out here, it's streaky, it's patchy, it's rare, or at least relatively rare, um, and it certainly can be bioluminescent. Another thing I'll mention, I do want to mention, because it's kind of, I think, kind of important, is the scale of it. So this is from this same paper. They noticed that the red tide was coastal, meaning it was close to shore, but it, could, it extended a long distance. So um, they noticed in this red tide in 2001, they had reports at least that it stretched from Santa Barbara all the way down to San Diego. That has uh, been borne out, or at least that's uh, commonly true uh, these days. And another thing that I think that if anybody here is into uh, sport fishing, um, they'll agree with as well, which is that where the red tide is, uh, fishing for sport fish does not happen. And that is still the truth. And if you talk to fishers around San Diego, the sport fishing fleet, um, they don't like the red tide because they know they can't catch any, any big fish in it. And again, this is all 1901, which I think this is um, quite amazing. Okay, so... That was the first, uh, the first instance of it being written down about on the West Coast. Um, soon thereafter, uh, right around then, Scripps was starting to get uh, put together and get formed and, and become the institution that it was, uh, came to be. Um, and early on, uh, Scripps concerned itself with studying the red tide. And the person that really kind of put their initial stake in the ground on this problem was somebody named Winford E. Allen, W.E. Allen, and uh, Winfred Allen was, was responsible for some really important things when it comes to understanding phytoplankton, biology, and ecology in Southern California and probably globally as well. And so I've listed the papers uh, that W.E. Allen wrote about the red tide. You can see that there were a number of them. And the, the reason why I think this is actually kind of important is that there is this one observation in 1901 um, in that paper, they said that that was the first that they were aware of, the person that wrote that paper. Um, and then uh, W.E. Allen, um, well, th then there were more red tides, and they were, and they were observed on and off uh, throughout the 30s and 40s. And W.E. Allen did a number of really important things, as I was saying, for, for our understanding of phytoplankton ecology. And they primarily focus around studies of phytoplankton ecology from Scripps Pier. And so the pier was built, I think, in 1914, um, and that began a history of scripts contributing to long-term time series of lots of different kinds of variables. But W.E. Allen incredibly created a time series where he went out and he sampled the plankton every single day for 20 straight years. It's absolutely incredible. Um, and that... It remains the gold standard uh, record for, for hand sampling phytoplankton anywhere in the country or the world, probably. I actually used data from W.E. Allen's uh, study in my PhD uh, dissertation and one of the papers for my PhD dissertation. Um, it's appeared, that, that time series appear, has appeared 
in probably hundreds of scientific papers. The amount of effort and dedication it takes to do something like that is truly indescribable. But what's important about what W.E. Allen did is he didn't just go there and say, okay, look, I, there's a plankton and it's nice, pretty, it's great, okay, I go the next day, like, oh, here's a different plankton. No, he created a quantitative way of measuring how much of the organisms there were. And that's the difference between observations, which are great, and science. So you have to have a quantitative record, and the quantitative record doesn't just depend on you going every day. It certainly depends on that. And it doesn't just depend on your dedication to it, but it depends on creating techniques that are repeatable. And so what W.E. Allen did, uh, much to uh, his uh, credit, is he created really the first set of quantitative sampling for phytoplankton. And in this picture of him at the end of Scripps Pier, you can see one of those devices. They used bolts of silk that had different weaves, and the different weaves allowed different sized organisms to be trapped. After much experimenting, he spent two years of daily samples before he realized his techniques were wrong and they had to throw out the whole first two years. And so he, he created this system. He created his, uh, one of the first, and there are many actually examples of, of this invented in different oceanographic institutions, but he created the first, one of the first self-closing bottles, meaning he lowered in the water and take a sample at depth and he created these techniques for taking a certain amount of water, filtering it, and then counting how much was in it. And that laid the groundwork for understanding, well, what is normal? You say there's never been this plankton before, but how do we actually know that? Well, the only way you can know it is by observing it. And so W.E. Allen really laid the foundation for understanding of the ecosystem through that dedication and through that technological innovation. Um, and he was uh, certainly not the last uh, person to work on this problem. Um, another uh, person that really deserves a ton of credit when it comes to understanding phytoplankton ecology generally, but also in Southern California Bite, is uh, this gentleman here, Dick Epley. Um, uh, Dick Epley was responsible for, well, I would say, you know, a, a big portion of what we believe or what we know about uh, the quantitative aspects of biological oceanography when it comes to the base of the food chain. Um, he, he did a lot of different things, and I won't be able to cover it all here. Um, but he got interested in the problem uh, because after a relatively long hiatus, there was another one of these very strong red tides. And so now this is, I think, the sixth paper that is red water in La Jolla Bay some year. And uh, he, Dick Epley, and his colleagues um, were after the mechanism. So they were after trying to understand how it is that this organism retained this dominance. And, they, and, and Dick Epley was responsible for uh, a really sort of important uh, approach to quantifying um, uh, chemicals in seawater in order to be able to make measurements or budgets of those quantities. So he's particularly known for his, uh, for his contributions to our understanding of the marine nitrogen cycle. And so once they started to learn how to measure nitrogen, they realized that these organisms, these phytoplankton, depended on nitrogen to reproduce. Just like a fertilizer that you would put on your plants in your garden, they need nitrogen, they need nutrients in order to grow. And there was a strong red tide, and they went out and they measured the red tide, and they calculated how, much, how many organisms were there, and they calculated how much nitrogen was available, 
and there was just a total mismatch. There was way more plankton than there was nitrogen available to support their growth. And this was a big mystery because how could it be that these organisms, which they know depend on the usage of nitrogen, um, outstrip the amount of nitrogen that's available? I should be very specific about that. They were talking about the nitrogen that was being observed where these organisms were. So near the surface, they photosynthesize. I should have said that early, or earlier on. That is, they uh, gain the, they're actually mixotrophic, so they can also eat things, but they primarily photosynthesize. And so that means they need to be close to sunlight in order to, um, uh, to reproduce, but they also need this fertilizer. So they had this quantitative mismatch between the amount of nitrogen available and the organism, the density of the organisms. And so they knew they must be concentrated somehow relative to a background. It couldn't be that they just took the nitrogen in the water around them, turned it into phytoplankton, and then they arrived at this abundance. And so they recognized the importance of their, of their swimming. Um, and so they proposed right around this paper, I don't know if it was in this paper or maybe the next one, um, that the swimming ability of these organisms was the key to understanding this puzzle. The key to understanding how these organisms could be at such high abundances when the nutrients they need to reproduce are at level equals zero where they're found. And so what Dick Epley and his colleagues uh, hypothesized was that these organisms swam vertically up and down in the water column, and they did so with a daily rhythm, meaning that they would swim upwards during the day in order to photosynthesize like little, photo, uh, like little um, solar cells, and then they would dive down at night, uh, and they would get nutrients from down deep, and then they would uh, absorb those nutrients at night, and they would uh, come back up to the surface and photo photosynthesize the next day. So that was a hypothesis that came out uh, that they put out about 50 years ago. And um, a lot of work went into trying to prove that hypothesis. That's, that's what science is. You take observations, you notice something like this mismatch between the biomass of this bloom and the amount of nitrogen that you need to support it. And then you put out, you, you create a hypothesis and then you test it. And so what they did in the field then to test it was they took uh, samples of the organisms they uh, created a culture of these organisms, meaning they have a reproducing, uh, but in the laboratory reproducing population of the organisms. And then they put them, they put them in a giant tank that they constructed uh, on Scripps campus, which is actually no longer in use, but still there by the hydraulics lab. It's called the deep tank. And they did experiments. So this tank, and this is, a, uh, this is data from that laboratory experiment, this is a very big laboratory experiment. The tank is 10 meters deep, so 30 feet tall. Um, and they had an organism, they had these organisms in the tank, a high density of them, and they could control the light. So what they did was they turned the light on, they turned the light off, they turned the light on, and they turned the light off, and they observed the patterns of the distribution of these organisms with depth. So now we've gone from observing this uh, event to quantifying the event and how out of uh, the normal range it is. That's what WER contributed to understanding that there was some mismatch in the budgets of nitrogen and carbon to doing experiments in the laboratory to understand where that came from. 
And this was the state of the art at the time. And this showed pretty conclusively that these organisms responded to cycles in sunlight. That is to say that they could tell that when they turned on the light, the organisms swam upwards, and when they turned off the light, they swam downwards. And so uh, I was lucky to, to know Dick Epley a little bit, and um, you know, he played a, he was a, somebody I uh, you know, really looked up to. Um, I mean, how could you not? He was a, a legend. Uh, he passed away only a few weeks ago um, uh, now. And uh, this picture was in his obit. Um, and uh, and that, uh, that uh, issue of oceanography that, that he's reading is actually for, from the um, Bay of Bengal work that I showed you earlier. That Those pictures take, were taken by one of the um, pictures that are on the cover were taken by one of the, um, one of the folks that works in our lab, San. Um, and so... You know, I wanted to make sure that I, I recognized uh, Dick's contribution to this. And so he made this, he created this hypothesis, tested this hypothesis in the laboratory, but he retired in, I think, 1990 or 1991. Um, and he was left a little bit frustrated because what was lacking was his capacity to do a controlled, and still lacking for all of us, to do a controlled experiment in the ocean. So it's one thing to show it in the laboratory where you can manipulate the amount of light. You can manipulate the amount of nitrogen that's available. Doing it in the ocean, that is to say, observing it while it's happening in the ocean is a different uh, thing entirely. Okay. Um, so I just, this is a, a bit of a slight tangent, but I, I do want to make sure that folks realize how crucially important uh, Scripps Pier is and the long-term time series that have been happening at Scripps Pier for over 100 years are to our understanding of many things. And I know you guys are a simpatico audience that probably already understands this, but if you'll just uh, bear with me. Um, Scripps Pier has been home to something called the, the Shore Station Program uh, since 1914-1915. Those are uh, the primary measurement there is a measurement of sea surface temperature. Um, and that's happened basically every day uh, since uh, 1914. Um, that, that includes most of World War II. That includes all the things that happened, the moon landing, everything else out there measuring sea surface temperature. And I, I wanted to acknowledge and recognize uh, somebody who was really important um, in keeping that going, and that was uh, John McGowan. Um, and this picture of John, uh, I think, is from 2009-ish. Um, and John McGowan, who's in the middle there, um, and then uh, to his left, I guess, and to your right as you're looking at it, uh, is Melissa Carter. Melissa Carter runs the Shore Station program. Now they uh, continue to sample um, just in the way they always have, using a bucket, uh, which is crazy to think about, right? I'll tell you a little bit more about that. There's a reason why they still use a bucket. Does anybody have any idea why they still use a bucket to study? I can hear you guys all saying the right thing. It, you have the technique matters, right? And so, as you'll see in a second, the program is far expanded beyond just the bucket. But the bucket remains, and we still use the bucket so we can compare observations from 2023 to observations from 1914. And as an aside, I'll say when they rebuilt the pier in the 80s, they actually changed the pier, the length changed a little bit. And that small change in the length of the pier actually impacted that time series. Um, so these things, it doesn't mean that the ocean isn't warming, as I'll show you in a second. It very clearly is at the end of Scripps Pier. 
Um, but that methodological stuff really matters. So anyways, John played a huge role in continuing that um, effort. And, and here's kind of the fruits of the labor. Uh, you guys have probably seen maps like this before. Um, this is each vertical bar is an annual average of temperature relative to the average of temperature over the entire length of the time series, meaning that it's an anomaly. And what it shows is starting from the 1940, uh, 19, you know, 1920s or so, going all the way to today, how temperature at the end of Scripps Pier has changed. And when I teach my uh, classes in oceanic and atmospheric science for undergraduates, I show them this time series because it is, when you talk about the ocean's changing character, to me this is as evocative as it gets. There's been almost a full degree change in sea surface temperature measured at the end of Scripps Pier. The only way of knowing that is the dedication of people who are making these measurements every day from 1914 to 2023. You know, that is not theoretical. These are measurements and this is, these are the facts. Of course, there's a lot of research at Scripps that's documenting our changing planet that's, you know, maybe more technologically advanced than this. But this is, a, this is our own front yard uh, here. So the work of W.E. Allen, the work of Dick Epley, the work of John McGowan um, has led into a sort of a bigger uh, attempt for us to monitor and understand our coastal environment. And that exists all around the country now, and it's supported primarily by NOAA. And here at Scripps, some of you potentially have seen a talk by um, the director of SCUS, Clarissa Anderson, who I believe has talked to this group before. But here in Southern California, we have something called the Southern California Coastal Ocean Observing System. And it's kind of like the next generation from just putting the bucket at the end of the pier, although it does still support that work. We have automated sensors. They're in a lot of different locations in California, not just at Scripps Pier. They're measuring a lot of different variables, not just temperature, not just counting the plankton. It's measuring the pH, the dissolved oxygen, um, the temperature at the surface in the bottom. Um, there's still biweekly uh, collections of phytoplankton. Um, and these are really, again, really important records to continue our under trying to understand how um, the climate is changing or how changing climate is impacting our local um, ecosystem. And SCUS was a really important uh, funder of the work um, that uh, I'm going to show you today. Okay, so that's a little bit of the history. Um, this problem is not new. Um, I'm not the only person, of course, to work on it. Um, but what we have done through the development of technology is build on this legacy. Um, and so the first thing I want to describe to you is our understanding, and this came before the 2020 red tide, of our understanding of how the patterns of the red tide that you can see with your eyes form. So here are two different pictures. These are both local uh, pictures. The one on the left was the cover of Oceanography Magazine. Um, and the, the first paper there was written by a graduate student uh, of mine and my advisor, Peter Franks. We co-advised uh, the student named Jessica Garwood. And this is a picture taken by a former Scripps employee named Eddie Kisfaludi. Both of them are. Um, and the one on the left is a red tide of the same species just offshore of Del Mar. And you can see right away that there are these amazing narrow bands, this beautiful sort of non-homogenous distribution of the organisms. Um, these blooms don't always, this particular organism, Ligodinia polyhedra, is always red, but we have other types of blooms. Um, the W.E. Allen papers, one of them was called the Yellow Water in La Jolla Bay. 
Here's an example of a kind of a yellow green tide on the right hand side. That's actually the, um, the same paper. Um, and that's obviously Scripps Pier. And again, I'm just I'm showing this to point out these incredible narrow banded uh, features. And so the first thing that, uh, that we want to investigate is how do those features arise? So we know that there has to be a lot of plankton or else we wouldn't see them. But why would they be distributed in these funny bands and not just be all the way uh, distributed around the ocean? And this is, in fact, one of the first things that the first paper uh, about the, this phenomenon recognized is that they weren't uniformly distributed. Okay, so I took this time lapse. I'm not going to show the whole thing. Um, this is taken from Nuremberg Hall, which is just down the hill here. Uh, but you can see this if you look out on a clear day. Who's seen the beautiful patterns of ruffled water and smooth water that are just off the uh, um, offshore here uh, in the past? You can really see it beautifully from up here. Um, so this is a time-lapse video. And we're looking at the pedestrian bridge that crosses La Jolla Shores Drive from Scripps Campus. And can you see these bands of, um, of sort of flat water? Uh, and they're separated by, um, by uh, waters with some corrugation. And you can see them moving slowly inshore. And those bands are associated with what we call internal waves. So internal waves are simply gravity waves, like the ones you see on the surface of the ocean, but they exist in the body of the ocean. And they're waves like any other in the sense that they have a peak and a trough and they move. And so they, these internal waves create patterns on the sea surface. It doesn't really matter why, but next time you look out there and you can see, when you see these patterns of flat water and corrugated water one after the other, if you stay there long enough, you'll watch them move. And you'll now know that they are formed by waves and they're waves inside of the body of the ocean. Here, um, just in front of uh, Scripps Oceanography, they're primarily created by the submarine La Jolla Canyon. These are globally relevant things. Internal waves are all over the uh, world's oceans. I've spent a good deal of my career studying them. They're super important to how heat, um, how nutrients are transported in the ocean. They're important to the global overturning ocean circulation. Um, and they're also important to the distribution of organisms in the ocean. Um, I, this is black and white because it gives better contrast, but it also is kind of nice because it looks like it's old timey. But uh, I, I, this is like a year and a half old, I think. I think it's to the end. So it's not, yeah, it's not from 1901. Okay, so patchiness. Um, so I, I had to take this pic, I had to show this picture. This is my PhD advisor, uh, Peter Franks. Uh, he's a professor at Scripps uh, still. Um, and Peter spent his career studying internal waves and plankton. And uh, uh, one of his, I think, first students, Clarity Leonard Cody, um, went out during a red tide, and she was on a small boat launched from Scripps Pier, and she took a newfangled instrument that measured how much chlorophyll is in the water, and she sat in the boat, and she, with her hands, she lowered the instrument down to the bottom, and then she picked it up again, she lowered it down to the bottom, picked it up again, lowered it down to the bottom, picked it up again, did it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again for... Uh, I think like maybe two days in a row, something crazy. Um, it's, there's always dedication in these stories. Um, and what Clarity and uh, Peter showed with this kind of newfangled technique, which is they're using electronics now to measure how much plankton there is, but still you know, the power of their own arms to lower the thing up and down, 
what they uh, what they showed is that so these little white lines here are uh, surfaces of constant temperature. So you read it maybe like you would think of a topographic map that you would look at to see a mountain um, or just the surface of the ocean going up and down. And those surfaces of constant temperature are displaced by passing internal waves. And so here is the trough of one wave. Here's the trough of another. Here's the trough of another. It turns out these are happening all the time right in front of our institution. And these measurements, the color map here, is the amount of chlorophyll in the water, which is a proxy for how much plankton there is. And what jumps out at you when you look at this is that there's really high concentrations of the plankton right where the troughs of those waves are. And that spawned almost a cottage industry in trying to understand that process. It still goes on today. The paper that I, I showed you earlier, written by Jessica, Life and in Internal Waves, uh, which was published in 2019, maybe, still us trying to understand exactly how it is that these organisms get concentrated in these internal waves. But two things we know for sure from this research. One is that it matters that they swim. And the reason for that is the same reason why those slicks form on the surface. The slicks form on the surface of the ocean because surfactants, oils, and things like that are buoyant. And these internal waves create vertical circulations in the ocean. And where those vertical circulations are combining to go downwards, things that float will not go down with it, and they concentrate in those bands. And so the surfactants create a little bit of oil in the water, will kill those capillary waves, and create those smooth slicks. The organisms, these phytoplankton, they swim vertically, so it's like they're buoyant particles. And as the waves go by, because they cannot get sucked down with the waves, they get concentrated by them. And so, as I said, there's sort of a cottage industry of trying to understand internal waves and um, swimming and phytoplankton distribution. This is an even more modern look. Um, so Melissa Oman was a student of Peter's at the same time I was doing my PhD with him. This image on the left is a combination of moorings measuring chlorophyll and chlorophyll measuring jet skis. And there, this was off of Huntington Beach. And what uh, Melissa showed is that an internal wave cresting on the beach created a band of uh, high chlorophyll to show up out of nowhere. So this internal wave has created this, uh, this, uh, this patch of uh, these organisms. Um, I use some technology I'm going to describe here in a second. Um, I've been studying this, pro this problem since my uh, PhD. This is actually my uh, postdoctoral work in South Africa, where I was studying phytoplankton blooms and how they formed. And there, there's different processes, but the same rules apply in the sense that the waves were creating patches of plankton. So in this case, they're related to the wind, the way the wind blows, these patches of plankton come to the surface, and then they come, they go back and forth on and offshore associated with these wind-driven internal waves. So that was kind of the state of knowledge when it came to understanding these blooms here in Southern California. There's a lot more to them than just the patterns, but we kind of figured out that the patterns arose from physical disturbance, that, the, um, that the, the swimming was very important, the biomass was very high, but we're still wondering why it was that they came to dominate the assemblage. That is to say, how is it that they are 
um, getting this numerical dominance. So in the next few minutes, I'm going to tell you about what we know so far about the event in 2020. Do folks remember uh, the 2020 event specifically? One thing I will say about the 2020 event that will make it a little bit hard to remember is that it was right at the beginning of the lockdown of the pandemic. And so we were all, a lot of us were inside. That really made uh, studying this extra challenging. I promise I wasn't going to do this, but uh, this is not a picture from January 6th. Um, <laughs> this is, sorry, I had to do it. That was like groans mixed with laughs. I'll, I'll take it. It's a tough joke. Um, I took that picture. That's us going out to sample the red tide in uh, late April of 2020. This was still during the lockdown. We had to get special permission uh, to come and study the tide, the red tide. And the reason why we were granted it is that it was an exceptionally strong event. So it started in early April. It lasted until the end of May. It was the entire Southern California bite down to pretty much halfway down Baja, California. At its peak, the concentration of cells at the end of the pier, 9 million cells per liter, the highest number ever recorded before that in any of these other blooms dating back 100 years was 1 million cells per liter. So it's 10 times stronger than any event. And I can say with confidence that we know what normal is for these because of this 100 years of studying it. And this was extremely abnormal. Um, and it was right in the middle of a COVID lockdown. So there were some unique kind of environmental conditions that, that happened then. And there are things that, you know, if you want to think about why these red tides happen, you need to consider. First of all, we had a late, uh, we, had a rain, we had rain quite late in the season. So this is a map of precipitation in April of 2020 uh, as a function of percentage of normal. And it was, I don't know, four or 500 times, uh, four or 500 percent more rain than we normally get in April. So it's rare for us to get uh, late st storms as late as April. We got a bunch of rain, um, and then it got very calm, very warm. And so on the left is sea surface temperature measured at the end of Scripps Pier. This blue line is the sea surface temperature right when the bloom is happening in 2020. And all the red dots are, uh, are records relative to over 100 years of temperature being measured at the end of Scripps Pier. The water was 78 degrees in May. So it was wet, and then it became exceptionally warm. And those are things that we know matter to these organisms. They like it stratified. I'll talk about what that means in a second. And they like it uh, very warm. It's had this unprecedented event had really big impacts. So these are some of the um, uh, measurements that are made at the end of Scripps Pier. Um, thanks to the Scripps uh, Ocean Acidification Monitoring Network. Uh, the one on the left is dissolved oxygen concentrations, and the one on the right is pH. And the, what I'll try to draw your eye to is the before the bloom and then the after for both oxygen and pH. Um, the oxygen at the end of Scripps Pier dropped to zero. Everything that's in this gray box here is potentially harmful to marine life. And in uh, uh, early May, the oxygen that was getting, uh, that was the dissolved oxygen at the, basically at the surface at, at Scripps Pier was at zero, meaning that this is a, uh, an event that killed uh, a fair amount of marine life. It impacted our experimental aquaria because that's the intake 
for the both this aquarium and the ones where that are doing experiments down at Scripps. So that is a, I, I don't know if it, that's ever happened before, that it's gone to zero. Uh, and here is pH. Uh, pH is a log scale. So relative to, um, relative to the normal baseline, which is about here, when the oxygen went to zero, the uh, water was 10 times more acidic than it, it, it is during normal uh, conditions. So these are serious changes in the marine ecosystem. And I, the ocean is very big. So to take all of the oxygen out of the, of, uh, out of the coastal ocean, that requires a major, major event. I um, mean, this is what we saw. And so this, I think, is from, uh, from a picture from Carlsbad, but there was fish kills uh, in, um, uh, in, uh, by Scripps Pier as well. And these, we believe, are related to the lack of oxygen. Okay, so um, we uh, happened to be developing some technology at the time that is the point of the technology was trying to track how much nitrogen there was at the same time as we were tracking how much plankton. And I know it's going to sound a little bit stupid, but since I was a graduate student, I have been uh, on a quest to prove that these organisms actually swim in the field. That is to say that in the ocean, they actually swim. It's one of those hypotheses that everybody believed in, but nobody had the field data to show it. And so I was with my colleagues at the Multiscale Ocean Dynamics Group developing a system to try to measure this. And then the red tide happened and we went out there and we gathered some uh, observations and we tested this 50-year-old hypothesis. Um, and, and in a paper led by one of my students, Bo Fu Zhang, um, that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences uh, in September of this year. And actually, that picture I started the um, talk out with was on the cover of uh, PNAS Magazine, um, we finally were able to test this long-held hypothesis. So we used two kind of cool new toys. Uh, they, they are, uh, one of them is not mine, um, but is, is a really cool one. Um, and that is the instrument on the bottom uh, right of the screen there called the Imaging Flow Cytobot. And the Imaging Flow Cytobot is a submersible microscope with AI in it, and it takes pictures of what's in the water, and then it categorizes them, it counts them, and it gives us quantitative information about what's in the water. So this is what W.E. Allen spent 20 years doing, and now there's a robot that does it, which is, which is the progression, right? And so I should mention that this is, um, uh, the instrument was uh, invented by Heidi Sosek, who's at Woods Hole Oceanographic, um, and this was deployed just offshore of Del Mar and is still deployed offshore of Del Mar, supported by SCUS. Um, and it's Uva Sen's group that does, uh, does the deployments. And then Andrew Barton and Clarissa Anderson um, are also involved. And so this instrument was deployed at the time. So it's actually taking in the water microscope pictures and counting the plankton. And this is what it uh, looks like. These are images from May 2020. Um, on the bottom, you can see all of the images of the plankton for a particular um, uh, set of images. And uh, when you start on the left, that was kind of before the bloom took over. And as you move to the right, that's moving further and further into the bloom. And you can see these little uh, organisms here. This is, this is a picture from the imaging flow cytobot. This is, an, this is a dinoflagellate in the ocean 
It's not in a, uh, in a net or in a microscope, you know, on a laboratory. This, is a, this organism was imaged and then went on, on, went on its way. Um, and I just want to show the comparison to the, um, that, the uh, sketch drawn by uh, Tori. Now, can there be any doubt that this is the same organism? I know, we know it is. Um, and so this was a really, really useful thing to have. And in fact, it tracked the entire bloom. And so here's the analysis from that instrument, the uh, part of this paper that we wrote. Um, the top panel is the amount of carbon in terms of biomass. And the bottom panel is the amount of this organism, Lingodidium polyhedra, as a percentage of the total amount of plankton that were in the sample. And this is from the beginning of the bloom, basically to the end. And the thing I want to point out about this, I'm going to come back to it, uh, is just the incredible amount of variability. So this is an extreme red tide, but yet the biomass at this one location, at this mooring near the surface, is going up and down, up and down, up and down. These huge spikes that are coming and going. Um, and then as a function of the total percentage of organisms that are measured, you can see that the, the organism starts as pretty rare, by the middle of April, at times, it's 80% or more of the total assemblage. But at other times, in fact, at night, it's very little percentage of the, of the total uh, constituents of, uh, the, uh, of the um, total population. By the time you get into mid-May, it's still variable, but it's almost the entire sample. So what's going on with that? So that is a, that's a super powerful tool. Right, because all of a sudden we have this incredible ability to measure the county cells, um, but it only measures at one location. And so that's where we bring our technology to bear. And the technology that we brought to bear the, to the problem is something that we have uh, been working on in my group uh, for a long time. There was a, a, an idea from uh, one of my mentors, Rob Pinkle, and it's called the Wirewalker. And the Wirewalker is an ocean wave powered device. It moves vertically up and down in the water, powered by ocean waves, and then you can affix all sorts of different sample, uh, samplers to it. So here's a cool, fun stop-motion video that one of my colleagues made. Um, and it's will really explain how this system works. Um, and uh, this, this is far better than me uh, just kind of doing the hand dance. But uh, So there's a buoy at the surface. There's a weight at the bottom, and then we put our vehicle on. We can put whatever instruments we like on it. That's what's so cool about it. It's very modular. Um, and the buoy and the wire and the weight go up and down with the ocean waves. And inside of the vehicle, there's a mechanical system that grabs onto the wire when it's moving downwards and lets go of the wire when the wire is moving up. And that's all because the surface buoy is moving up and down. If you've ever seen a buoy in the ocean, you'll notice the waves are taking it all over the place. Once it reaches the bottom, wherever we decide the bottom is, that mechanical device, is the, mechanic, the mechanism inside is released, and it floats back up to the surface. It's buoyant. So the waves push it down, and then it's released, and it floats back up to the surface. And so then instead of having a measurements at just one location, we can take one instrument, and we can cycle it continuously up and down, just like poor Clarity had to do with her hands, but now we're using environmental energy to do that same thing. So this device has been a huge part of my research. We've deployed it all around the world. And at the time that this red tide happened, we were trying to figure out how to make these measurements 
of nitrate. And so the things you need to measure to test this hypothesis in the field about how important swimming is to formation of the bloom is you need to know how much plankton there is. You need to know how much nutrients or how much nitrogen is available. You need to know how much light there is because they depend on light. And then you need to know something that's the hard part. And that is that we, I told you already that these waves create patterns in the uh, distribution of the plankton. And that actually makes things way more complicated when you want to study process. Because I now have to separate the waves changing the concentrations of the plankton from the plankton growing. And so that is the reason why that hypothesis lasted 50 years, is that doing that in the ocean, separating the physical changes in the phytoplankton patches from the intrinsic growth of the plankton requires monitoring and being able to separate that physical mediated things from biological mediated variability. So this is what these data look like. The y-axis is depth. This is a system we put out right next to that um, submersible microscope. It was about uh, 50 feet away. It's in about 100 meters of water offshore of Del Mar. It measured the temperature, it measured the salinity. You can see um, very obviously there's all this funny spiky stuff and the temperatures, you know, it's this yellow stuff is going up, it's going down, it's going up, it's going down. Those are the waves, these internal waves. Um, and then for the first time, and this was the very first time we measured this effectively, um, we measured the concentration of the nutrient that they needed, nitrate. So we also measured the amount of chlorophyll, and this is kind of the key time series here. This is what a red tide looks like if you're looking at it with depth. And some of the things that were noticed 50 years ago are still true. They like to stick to the surface during the day. The high concentrations are at the surface during the day. They uh, move in depth. Um, over the course of the day, and they can do things that are either moving with the waves or moving uh, without the waves. And so here's the time series we analyzed from this vehicle, the Wirewalker. This was us going out to deploy it. Um, this is Tyler Hewen, who uh, worked with me for many years um, at Scripps, and he and I went out by ourselves. We put this system in with the nitrate sensors, and we started acquiring these data in the middle of the red tide. And when I got this time series um, and I got it in my hands after we recovered the instrument and I saw this pattern of this chlorophyll, that's how green the water is, moving from the surface down, surface down, surface down, surface down, I realized I'd finally, finally seen it for sure. I'd seen the fact that they were swimming in the field. Now, the challenge was to correlate that or to, to make a quantitative estimate about how that swimming behavior impacted the amount of nutrients. And so I'll kind of spare you the details, but I will say that the two kind of fundamental things that we had to figure out was one, we had to get the waves out of the changing of the uh, um, uh, variability of the phytoplankton associated with the waves. And the way that we did that is we mapped the chlorophyll to these um, undulating surfaces of density. And we were able to do that because we were collecting the high-resolution physical oceanographic information at the same time as the biological information. And so this uh, plot, which is, again, depth and time, 
I've now removed or remapped the data into a frame of reference that's invecting up and down with the waves. So that was the first trick. And that really highlights this diving um, behavior of the organisms. And we're actually able to measure the speed at which they swim. We can compare that speed to the laboratory uh, measurements. And it turns out they compare basically perfectly. Um, these things are exceptional, exceptional swimmers. That's their key. They swim. We, when you quantify swimming in the ocean, we, you quantify it in terms of their own body length. It's called body lengths per second. So a short fin mako shark, the fastest fish in the sea, full dead sprint, you know, 40, 35, 40 miles an hour is going about 10 body lengths per second. These organisms, and that's for, you know, a couple of minutes, maybe at a maximum. These organisms are going, it seems, doesn't seem like that fast, half a millimeter a second, but that's actually 10 body lengths per second. And they're doing it for hours and hours and hours at a time. These descents take more than 12 hours, as it turned out. These are, these are dives that are taking 18 um, uh, to 24 hours to uh, accomplish. They're cued by the light. So we were also measuring the amount of light coming in, both underwater and at the surface. As the light goes down, they begin their descent. They swim all the way down to a depth that, as it turns out, was perfectly correlated to where the nitrogen was. And they were doing so with this just, you know, uh, they are the Michael Phelps of the plankton world. Um, they really uh, are exceptional swimmers, and it's really that capacity to do that. So they were diving down, we measured them, and we were measuring them uh, swimming, we were comparing against laboratory results. And so that's one thing. So the vertical movement of the waves, we could get that out. That's pretty easy. The second thing, and I'll give uh, uh, Peter and, and, and my uh, graduate student, Bofu, a lot of credit for this. The second complicated thing is that the ocean is always moving horizontally. And the horizontal motion of the ocean, so that's just currents, tides, moving things around, that can also move or does also move patches of plankton around. So again, that challenges your ability to make this quantitative measurement. We need to prove that the organisms went down here and they took up nitrate. But if they're constantly sloshing back and forth, you're challenged to do that. So again, we use this physical oceanographic data we're collecting on the profiler. We're able to track, using the temperature and salinity combination, we're able to track individual parcels of water and then make an estimate of the amount of nitrate being drawn down over time in all of these different water parcels. So now from a single location in space, we're tracking things that are moving up and down and things that are moving side to side. And so we can make these estimates of this uptake rate of nitrogen on each of these individual water parcels, and then we can make an average rate of uptake, and we can measure how much nitrogen has been taken up at the depth of swimming. And this is the smoking gun figure here. After we do all that work, we are measuring at the depth of the, of the vertical migration. This is the loss rate of nitrate calculated for individual water parcels. And in those same water parcels, so that is the blue line, is the law, it's an inverse scale. So it's uh, the loss as it goes up, that means there's more loss. Um, and then the red and black lines are the, our estimates of the amount 
of plankton. And so at depth in the field, we're showing that at the, the depth of migration, the loss rate of nitrogen is, at, is uh, 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 completely, uh, or the, sorry, the accumulation of phytoplankton um, or of lingladinium is exactly what we would expect given the loss rate that we estimated um, independently. So this is the smoking gun. And so this brings us back to here. We're almost done. This brings us back to, to here, and we see these incredible changes in the percentage of the organisms that were measured by this underwater microscope, changing from 90% to 10%. The white areas are daytime. The gray areas are night. So the, the, we know these are the lingladinium because we're, we're taking pictures of them. The bloom started at low levels. Very soon after the bloom started, they began this um, vertical migration behavior. And this is the amount of biomass. And the biomass increasing, increased, increased, increased until we reached this sort of epic level of biomass that created these harmful impacts. The amount of nitrate that we calculated that was missing was an unbelievable amount because of the, our ability to measure it against long-term averages. So we compared the amount of nitrate that we measured during that time versus 70 years of uh, nitrate information collected in the Cal Coffee program. This right, uh, the station is right next door. This level of nitrate deficit has, was had never in the record over 70 years. And here's sort of a map of that. This is my last data figure. This is what we would expect based on the historical record that distribution of these nutrients would be with depth and with time during this period. This is what we observed. And this is the difference. And that's the key, is that these organisms, through their swimming, took away the key nutrient for all the rest of the phytoplankton. And they brought it so low down that it was below the level that the sunlight could reach. And so they modified the environment through their behavior to create competitive advantage and, and become this incredible bloom. And a fun trick you can do is if you know, and this is, this is uh, you know, a, 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 a hat tip to Dick Epley, if you know how much nitrogen is missing, you can calculate how much carbon the bloom had. And I made that calculation assuming a certain scale of the bloom. Um, and you're talking about a million kilograms of carbon fixed by these organisms. And we measured that by the loss of nitrate. Okay, so that's it. I kind of uh, already summarized that. I've probably gone way too long. Um, and I will say thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.